Good morning. Happy Sunday to you and yours. Sounds like I'm reverberating a little bit. Can you hear me okay? Good deal. Our God is so good, isn't he? We could probably spend the next three hours, or at least we should, be able to spend the next three hours just standing up all around the room and reflecting on all the way his goodness displays itself to us, his forgiveness, his patience, his kindness, the breath in our lungs, the food on our table. I mean, we could just go on and on, right? There's another display of God's goodness that when I first trusted Christ, and I'm a first-generation believer, meaning that before me, none of my relatives were Christ-following folks. And so when I grew up as a child and a young teen, I had a, I guess you could say, an incomplete picture of what the Bible was all about. But what I've come to understand is that just part of God's goodness, just one more aspect, is this gift of his word to us. Just think about it. What we just sang, we, we sing on the basis of two things. Our experience of how he's shown his goodness to each of us personally, and also what we learn from this about who he is, and what he's like, and what he thinks about us even how he feels about us, how he went out of his way to make a relationship with us possible. That's what the cross is all about. And God's goodness is so amazing, and he wants us to taste more of it. Well, when I trusted Christ as a uh, freshman in high school, I, I was sold out. I was following him. I was all in, and I started reading through the New Testament. And, I, of course, you start in Matthew, go Mark, Luke, then you get to John, and by the time I got to John, my first impression, which unfortunately lasted for a number of decades, was, wow, John just doesn't go at the same pace that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. You know, John only focuses on something like seven miracles. He focuses on these long conversations that are very detailed. He said this, Jesus said that. Then he said that, and Jesus said this. And it's very detailed, and I found myself not just as a young Christian, young Christ follower, I found myself, I guess you could say, flying through the book of John. I guess I treated it like New Testament flyover country. And that was a a mistake. It really was. Now, down through the years, I came to realize that as I would talk with people who were like me, that they had no background of who Jesus was and what that had to do with them personally, I remember recommending to a lot of people, hey, why don't, you, why don't you study the book of John? And they would do that, and they would come back with questions, and I thought, you know, I should, I guess, read it too and think about it more deeply because I'm encouraging these other people to do that. Then I started a Bible study with some friends I had developed a relationship with who were like me, first, not even first generation yet, but they were just seeking. They were wondering who this Jesus was and what that could have to do with their lives 2,000 years after his life and his death. And so I remember uh, sitting in a Bible study with, I want to say, 16 people, and half of them were plants, okay? Half of them were there because they knew that the other half didn't know who Jesus was and maybe hadn't even seen what the Bible had to say about who Jesus was. And so, as we went through the book of John together, it was amazing 
just to see the popcorn start popping in the heart of both the yet unbelievers, most of them became believers after a few months, but then also to see the popcorn pop about other things in our lives from the believers. And I was one of the 50% in the room that was believers. Are you with me? Now, I wish I could say that at that point in time, that was about uh, 20 years ago. I wish I could say at that point in time that I said, I'm going to take a new look at the book of John. You know, I've been treating it like flyover country all this time, but, but I'm going to take a deeper dive. But I didn't do that. And so years passed, and I went through a difficult time in my life and a difficult transition in ministry and just a whole number of things going on. And in, a, in, an, in something that doesn't, hasn't occurred much for me in my 45 years of following Christ, yeah, I realize that's older than most of you are. So I've been following Christ before most of you were born, and for some of you, double it, right? Uh, as, I, as I came to this point in my life, I said, you know, I'm going to spend some time in this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room. And if you know anything about the book of John, it's about 25% of the book. And it's a really long conversation. And if I would fly over the whole gospel of John, you know, all 20, 21 chapters, whichever it is, I would really fly through this conversation he had with the disciples. I don't know exactly why. I don't know if I thought, well, you know, this is really more for, for them to hear because Jesus knew he was hours away from the crucifixion and he wanted to give them last-minute instructions. And I don't know if it was that. I don't know if it was like, boy, this is just too detailed and it's not really where I'm at right now in my journey or a combination of those items or others. I don't know why it was. But five years ago, I guess you could say God put on the brakes for me. And he, and he really impressed on me, I want you to think about your life and what I have to say to you through this conversation that Jesus had in the upper room with the disciples. Because the rest of the New Testament makes one thing very clear. It wasn't only intended for those 11, 12 guys. It was intended for us. Because the rest of the New Testament spends a lot of time expanding on that conversation. So just to give you a quick background, before we look at what I think is the, the thread that Jesus follows all the way through the conversation and what I've personally come to believe after five years of finally slowing down and reading it and thinking about it, that, that Jesus really wanted to impart to the disciples and to us. Before doing that, I just want to give you a quick background. Jesus has been warning the disciples for weeks that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going he's gonna to die. Now, he starts telling them toward the end of that time period that he's going to rise again too, but they're not getting it. You and I wouldn't have gotten it either. It would have been like, whoa, this is too much for us to handle. And then he arranges for them to celebrate the Passover together. If you've studied through the New Testament, you realize that the crucifixion was very closely tied to the Passover calendar, which is interesting because in the Old Testament, the Passover lamb was looking forward to what Jesus would eventually do years and years later after the days of the Exodus and the days of Moses. So, Jesus gets him in the upper room, and as I, as I start reading, my first question is, what's Jesus going to say? What's Jesus going to focus on? Now, I realize I should have asked those questions many years ago, right? But I hadn't. But at least, even though I'm a slow learner, I was learning. And so I thought, I wonder what 
he's going to focus on? Is he going to give him strategy? Like, hey, Peter, you go to, you go, you take over Jerusalem and kind of form the churches there. And, and, you know, Thomas, you go over to Asia and, you know, Matthew, you go to Rome. Or would he give instructions? Turns out he did not. Would, would he do a bunch of review of things like that real important teaching time, the Sermon on the Mount? Turns out he did not. Would he give them like step-by-step recipes of how to build churches and develop leadership and things like that? Turns out he did not. And what he ended up doing was the first thing he did when he was in the upper room, and those of you who haven't read over it too quickly, like I did for all those years, will realize that the whole description of the book of John begins with what Jesus does early in the evening. Early in the evening, we know, because Judas was still in the building. John makes it very clear when Judas leaves. And Judas was still in the building, and guess what Jesus does? And I think he was doing it more than just to set the tone for the evening. He was doing it for deeper reasons. But he gets down on his hands and knees, he picks up a basin, takes off his outer robe, puts a towel around his waist, and what does he do? He washes the disciples' feet. And then at the very end of that, he said, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And I think it was more than just a a tone-setting thing. I think it was a baton-passing moment for what he wanted them to experience going forward because he knew he was leaving, and by now it's starting to sink in with them that he's leaving. So then, then Jesus predicts his betrayal. This is all in John chapter 13. And then, then Judas leaves the room to do his dirty deed. As, as he leaves, Jesus focuses in, and John makes it very clear, on what he wants to, to be the main theme to get across to the disciples. And the main theme he shares, he called a new command. It's in John chapter 13, verse 34. And here's what he says. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, I want to leave that up there for a few minutes here just to reflect on that because in my years of flying through that passage, I had come to this sentence and I skimmed it quickly, but the first thing I thought of whenever I saw this sentence was, new command? That doesn't sound new. Jesus has talked about love a lot. Jesus has talked about treating other people with kindness and, you know, love and that kind of a thing. Why is he calling this new? Well, it must be because he's like, okay, this is the end of my three-year ministry, and as you know, I've been teaching this new command. But five years ago, when I started focusing on this, I, I really started to reflect, and this is a completely new command. It's brand new. And the best we can tell, based on what Jesus is saying and what was said before this, it was the first time Jesus ever gave it to him. And Judas had left the building. The rest of the conversation, Jesus makes it clear a couple of times that everybody left in the room, with Judas gone, had a personal relationship with him. They had put their trust in him for forgiveness. They had believed he was who he said he was, that he came for the sake of taking care of our sin problem, and they had put their trust in him. 
And so he's sitting around this table. He's already washed their feet. Judas has left and he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now at that moment, Peter refers to something Jesus said right before the new command. Because Jesus said, I'm, just, I'm getting ready to leave and I want to give you this new command. And what does Peter ask? Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? And so he, Jesus, very gently and patiently, like he does with us, like he did for me for 40 years, allows us to just bring our heart to him for comfort and for the questions we have instead of thinking about what he wants us to think about. In this case, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, when I, when I would fly through that passage in the past, I would think back to this one conversation that's recorded that Jesus had with the religious leader of the day. It's in Matthew 22. And I think we have the whole passage up there. Yeah. This was toward the end of Jesus' life and ministry, so probably a matter of weeks before he's in the upper room. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. They're the religious leaders of the day. One of them, an expert in the law, that means an expert in the, in the Old Testament, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, obviously, it's a setup. Any way Jesus answers, they would pick apart in, in more than just a political sense. You know, it would be a theological sense. They'd pick apart, they'd criticize him for it. But Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if you're like me, when you read that, John chapter 13, 34 verse where it says, as I have loved you, so you should love one another, your mind might have gone to this. Like, well, that sounds awful similar to Matthew chapter 22. Wow, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first great and greatest commandment. And the second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. But as I started reflecting, I started realizing there are at least two ways, I think there's even more, but two major ways that this quote unquote old commandment is different than Jesus' new commandment. At least two ways. Let's look at this old commandment. He ends by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus uses that terminology throughout his ministry, and whenever he's talking about loving your neighbor, he makes it very clear he means love others. So you could boil down the old commandment as love God, love others. So, He's encouraging them to love others. Well, when you think about that, loving others is like, sorry, I'm a math major. I apologize in advance for that. But when you, when you think about that command, love others, you picture a ray. A ray is a, is a half a line, right? It starts with a point and it points outward. Love your neighbor. So the old command is this. I want you to be a person that treats and relates to other people lovingly. That's the old command. Everybody with me? It could be an enemy, he says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, if you, yeah, love your enemies. Love your neighbors. Love those who persecute you. Love those who hurt you. Love those who are out to get you. He, he mentions it a lot, but it always starts with the point of a person's heart and points outward. Now let's flip back to the new command. You notice what's different? What's different is 
In John chapter 13, when Jesus is talking, he says, love one another. He doesn't say love your neighbor. Love one another. Now, love one another is a two-way street, isn't it? It's not just starting from my heart and your heart and pointing outward. It's not just a ray, it's a line. It's got arrows on both ends. It's not just something from my heart through a pipeline to somebody else's heart. This is one another, meaning there's flow back and forth. That's a big difference. There's a big difference between his old command and his new command. Love one another. Now, there's a whole lot to think about with that, but I just want to focus on just one thought I'd encourage you to reflect on as you go into this week, and that is this. To think about how you're doing at putting the new command into action in your life, you need to ask yourself two questions. How well am I doing at loving others, at moving toward their lives, their needs, their desires? Which is also the question of the old command, right? But there's a new question attached to it. There's a new question B, so to speak, and that is, how well am I doing at allowing others to love me? How am I putting my heart in play in a way that I'm open to receive God's kind of love from other brothers and sisters in Christ? That's a, that's a new question because it's a new command. And I would suggest that most of you in this room have not thought about that very much. When I went away to college and seminary in Warsaw, Indiana, I hadn't thought very much about it. And I was sitting in a group that our professor was leading. Um, actually, I wasn't sitting there. We were down by a, one of the lakes in Warsaw. We were having a, a group get-together. There's like 14 of us in this group. And it's a, it's a group to think about what we're learning and share what God's doing in our lives and have some Bible study. It was that kind of a group. And I was a student. We had the professor that was with us. And we happened to be down by a lake and as some of you may have noticed, I walk with a limp. And so whenever I get in the lake or the ocean or whatever, I need to take off my leg brace and use my crutches. And so I had my crutches with me, I had my chair with me, I had a food cooler and a towel around my neck or whatever. And as we were all leaving, I was walking up a hill, about a hundred yard hill with a slight incline, you know, limping as I normally do, but now with arms full of stuff and limping uphill, okay, which is even more painful for people to watch me limp uphill than it is on level ground. So as I'm, as I'm limping uphill, he comes walking up alongside me, the leader of the group. And he says, hey, Steve, hey, what's, what's happening this week for you? He starts chatting with me. And we just talk. We go up. You know, it takes me a couple extra minutes, so our conversation's longer than most conversations going up this hill, putting our stuff in the car. We talk. I pile my stuff in the car. He waves goodbye. I wave goodbye. And... We go home. A day or two later, we got together for our group, and we met in a room, you know, the 14, 15 of us, and he said, hey, before we get started today, uh, I want to I talk about something. I want to think about something. Everybody's like, okay, what do you want to talk about? Well, actually, Steve, it's a question I have for you. Oh, okay. A little bit on the spot, more than a little bit. I said, yeah, well, what's your question, brother? He says, well, Remember yesterday we were having that conversation coming up from the lake? I said, yeah, and I, I'm, I'm racking my mind. Did I say something to offend him? Did I, did I say something wrong or something like that? And 
I said, yeah. He said, do you remember all the stuff you were carrying? I said, yeah. Yeah, all the stuff I had by the beach. He said, did you notice that I wasn't carrying anything? I said, I guess I hadn't thought about that. He said, so here's my question for you. Why wouldn't you ask me to help you? I said, until this very moment, that wouldn't even been a thought that crossed my mind. I, I wouldn't... You know, ever since I was a kid, I, I was 12 years old when I lost my ability to walk. And ever since then, I just kind of try to do stuff on my own, be self-sufficient, so I don't need to rely on anybody else. And he started leaning on that a little bit. And that began a, began a process in my early 20s of thinking about this aspect. I didn't attach it yet to the new command, because I hadn't fully absorbed the new command, but it's the same concept. And that's this. God wants me ever bit as much as giving love and showing love and displaying love to others. He wants me to receive it from others. As a matter of fact, if I don't do that, I'm going to become discouraged. I'm going to become isolated. I'm going to become lonely. And if I don't, if I don't receive what others are offering, then I'm going to miss out on that. And you know, I never really thought about that practically in my life. And I would guess that a number of you will be in that same category. That you've never thought about that. That there's something about what I experience in terms of personally tasting God's love that's connected to how I allow God's love to flow through the hearts of others toward me. And that is one key way the new command is different. The, the old command was a one-way street from you and me to others. The new command is a whole new deal. I guess you could say it's a whole new level. It's from us to others and others back to us. There's a second, second way it's different, and this is a very key way too. As you look at this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Remember the old command? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard. That's a rough standard. When I remember coming to that old command, it's like, love my neighbor as myself? Wow. Loving myself comes pretty easy to me and comes easy to you as well, right? We get up in the morning and what's our default mode? We're thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about our day, our agenda. We're thinking about making ourselves comfortable, keeping ourselves fed. You know, it's like we don't need any training to, hey, remember yourself, Hey, remember, remember your needs. Hey, remember your desires. You know, remember, we don't need any help with that. And so when Jesus gave the old command and, you know, compiled it from the Old Testament commands, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. That, that is a high jump bar that really is hard to get over. Uh, the first man that mentored me, he discipled me in my relationship with Christ, told me that every morning when he showered, he went through an exercise. He said, I decide in that shower who I'm going to live for that day. If I'm going to love myself or if I'm going to serve others. And I've never forgotten that, even when I'm in the shower in the morning. Because that is a really good way to put the, the love me toward love others into motion the way God wants us to. And he does want us to love other people. But the new command has a whole different standard, doesn't it? Let's go back to John 13. John 13. A whole different standard. He doesn't say, 
love one another as yourself, what does he say? He says, love one another as I have loved you. Oh boy. Think about that for a moment. I want you to love one another and relate to each other in the same way that I've related to you. Wow. That's a whole new level. That God wants us to relate that way. So if the old command is off the charts difficult, you could say this one's impossible. How in the world can we love one another in the same way that Christ loved us? I mean, let's just start with the sacrifice he showed us on the cross. Very few of us have the opportunity to run out, jump out in front of a car coming on and saving one of each other's lives, right? That's a whole new level. So at this point, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus gets interrupted. But he comes back to this, this new command. He actually repeats twice more. That's a total of three times in this upper room conversation, which is why I personally think it is the thread that goes through all of it. And he comes back to it, and I'd like to join, for you to join me if you have your Bibles with you in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we're going to keep that verse on the, on, the, on the screen there, the new command in 13, but this is a couple chapters later, same conversation that he has with him, and he, he starts talking about this concept of closeness with him even though he's leaving. How's it going to be possible for them to be close to him, to experience his heart of love for them, even though he's leaving? If you look in chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus, in this paragraph, gets very specific, very measurable, very practical. And for years, as I read over this, I didn't realize this is the essence of the Christian life, according to Jesus. The whole upper room conversation, from my perspective, revolves around this paragraph. And this paragraph ends with the new command that he had started with back in John 13. Look at verse 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, let's just pause there for a second. The pages of Scripture, the gift of the Bible to us, describes what God's love is like, kind of like you look at a diamond from different directions. You see different things as you look from different sides, right? Is that called a facet? Different facets of the diamond? Is that what that's called? It's something like that, okay? I, I don't remember. It's been 33 years since I bought my wife's engagement ring. So as I'm, as I'm looking at God's love, there's different things I can learn about it because it's, it's completely out of this world. It's completely different and above anything that we've ever experienced in love. We have some things that taste a little bit similar, but his love is incredible. And so these disciples would have read a lot in the Old Testament and heard a lot of teaching from Jesus about what the love of God is like. But here, in this conversation, there's now minutes left before he's going to be leaving to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I think that might take us just about a thousand years to begin to get to the bottom of that Jesus looked at them in the eyes, and later in the New Testament, he looks each of us in the eyes and says, in the same way my Father loves me, that's the first person of the Trinity showing love to the second person of the Trinity, I have loved you. And Jesus don't lie. He meant it. And he means it for us. That's how deep, different, and passionate his love is for each of us. I love you 
like the Father loves me. Wow. But he doesn't stop there. He used these next few words. You might have a translation that says, now abide in my love. And that's probably a, a closer rendering than what the NIV says, now remain in my love. But neither abide nor remain comes anywhere close to describing what Jesus is asking his disciples to do. Because remember, his disciples were looking for comfort. They were looking for encouragement. What are we going to do without you, Jesus? We've been with you for three years. We've left everything, and you've kept us pretty encouraged. <laughs> Sometimes he's, he's kept them pretty confronted too, right? And on the straight and narrow, but he's kept them very encouraged all, after all this time. And what are we going to do without you? He says, well, you can remain in my love. You can experience my love. You can abide in my love. I think the best translation is, you can stay close to my loving heart for you if... You do a few things. And I think that's what he describes in these few sentences. So in verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Wow. Now remain in my love. So something about staying close to Jesus' loving heart for us has something to do with daily, in an ongoing way, absorbing just how crazy in love with me he is. Just how passionate in love with you he is. It has something to do with that. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 10, if you read along with me, he says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Let me expand that. If you obey my commands, you will stay close to your heart, my heart of love for you. You will stay close to experiencing that daily experience I want you to have. And then he compares that to what he did with the Father. He said, you're going to experience that in the same way that you saw me experiencing that from my father. As I obeyed my father and experienced his love for me, so you can experience my love for you by obeying me. Now, there's a whole lot more we can think about with this, and I just want to, I guess, wet, wet our tongues with it. But when Jesus says obeying, he doesn't mean what I normally think about obeying. Obeying is not the absence of disobedience. <laughs> That's not what obeying is, according to Jesus. Of course, it includes that. He doesn't want us to disobey. He doesn't want us to break the Ten Commandments. I won't ask for a show of hands, but a number of us in this room thought, oh, I need to obey God. I need to obey the Ten Commandments. That's not what Jesus is saying here. There was never a question as to whether or not Jesus would keep the Ten Commandments, right? He was the perfect son of God. No sin nature. It wasn't going to be an issue. But he still needed to choose to obey God in his own words, in verse 10, he said, just as I have chosen to obey the heavenly, my heavenly father and have experienced his love for me in an everyday, ongoing way, I've abided in him. It's a choice beyond just not disobeying. It's a choice of walking in step with him. It's a choice of living life his way. It's the choice of believing that his love for me is more than enough to satisfy everything I'm built to experience everything I desire, everything I long for. Wow, that's interesting. So when Jesus turns to them and says, this is how you'll experience this ongoing taste, daily experience of my love, if you obey me. And then just in case they missed it, look at verse 11. He says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is not something that's waiting until heaven to experience. 
I think, I think we would all agree that we'll experience this perfectly someday in heaven. But Jesus isn't talking about a someday experience here. Jesus is talking about the here and now. Jesus is talking about a closeness that we can experience with him before we're perfect, before we're in his presence, and before this world is made the way it should be. And all three of those things, those of us who follow Christ long for, right? But Jesus says you can experience some of this now. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That's significant. Then, verse 12, he comes back to the great command, the new command. And it's a little bit differently worded than John 13, but it's the same concept. Look down in verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Okay, now Jesus does a little bit of a plural to a singular transition here. Did you catch that? Back in verse 10, he says, follow my commandments, live life my way, live by my guiding principles, and all that that means. Now in verse 12, he says, this is my command, singular. Does that mean all the other ones don't matter? No, I think they matter, because Jesus wouldn't have said, you know, live life my way, excuse me. But when he says, this is my command, it's almost as if he's saying, okay, you want to take the first step in this new direction? You want to follow my new command? Love one another. And he comes back to where he had begun in the first place after Judas had left the room. Love one another. And he, he reminds them it's not just an, un, an impossible expectation because he says, love each other as I have loved you. As I have loved you. Jesus offers not only an expectation that would be impossible to fulfill, but he offers us the source to move toward it in a healthy direction. So that leaves us with three questions to think about with the new command. The first two I already brought up. How well am I doing? How well are you doing at displaying God's kind of love with others? The second question is, how well am I doing in making my heart available to experience God's love from others, through their hearts to mine? But there's a third question. And the third question is, what am I doing daily to absorb God's personal love for me? When I was a young Christian, one of my biggest mistakes was I approached the Bible as something I ought to do, as something I should do, as something I... I needed to do out of discipline. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with discipline, but there's certainly something incomplete about it. Because God didn't treat his word to be used that way. He sees his word less as a book of guidelines and more as a love letter. A love letter to each of us. A love letter that says, this is how much I love you and what I want you to experience of my love for you. And one of the main things he shares with his closest followers minutes before he was betrayed, tortured, crucified, and the third day rose again, was he looks him in the eye and he says, if you want to experience what I, what I have for you to experience, I'm going to give you a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And if you do, I guess you could say there's a built-in reward. And the built-in reward is this. You're going to taste my personal love for you more deeply as you do that. And there are some of you who are nodding internally. 
yeah, I've noticed that. When I give my heart away to others or when I allow somebody to give toward me, I do taste God's love more deeply. I do taste it more personally. It does feel like Christ's love with skin on it. I have tasted that. And the great news is, God wants us to experience more of that. Not just when we get to heaven, but between now and then. So as you close your eyes and reflect on that for a moment, I just want to give you a moment to think about those three areas of responding to this new command that has a promise attached to it. How are you doing displaying God's love to others? How are you showing His kind of love in sacrificial ways? Right after Jesus repeated that new command, He said, greater love has no one than this than someone would lay down his life for his friends. <coughs> and that's what Jesus did in a matter of hours. How are you doing at allowing others to move toward you? Are you inviting people to pray for you? Walk alongside you? Hold you accountable? And finally, how are you doing in your personal time with him? Are you, are you bathing yourself in his love? His personal love for you. That's what he offers. Our Savior, we're just so grateful that you love us. And you love us unlike anyone ever has or ever could on this planet. And we thank you that we don't have to wait to experience deep tastes of your love and deep tastes of your closeness until someday in the future but that as we love one another as you told us would happen this love inside of us is activated it, it becomes tangible it becomes heartfelt and we're grateful for that and I ask that you would stir in each of our hearts as we respond to the new command more deeply, more faithfully and then taste your closeness along the way and we pray all of these things in your name, Jesus.